Welcome to BIV Today, where the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Kirk LaPointe. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, we're talking cannabis. Of course, we're going to look south of the border to what Canada can learn from California, the world's largest legalized recreational marijuana market. And later on, Colors International will join us to combine two of the most talked about topics in Canada. We'll discuss what legalization means for real estate in Metro Vancouver and where recreational cannabis producers will be allowed to set up shop. And then BIV reporter Patrick Blennerhassett is going to dissect a new OECD report that shows how much Canadian workers pay in taxes compared to other countries. You're listening to BIV Today. Thanks a lot for joining the show. Our next guest is a cannabis activist, author, entrepreneur, and educator. Steve D'Angelo is the founder of Harborside Health Center. It's the world's largest medical marijuana dispensary, which also happens to operate in the world's largest legalized recreational cannabis market, that is the state of California. Steve is the co-founder and president of ArcView Group, which connects cannabis entrepreneurs with investors. And he was in Vancouver this week doing just that at the ArcView Cannabis Investment Forum. He joins us today on the line, now back in Oakland, California. Steve, thanks for coming on the program. Well, thanks so much for having me. How ready are we? How ready are we? Very ready. We've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> are we ready here in British Columbia? Are we ready here in Canada, do you think? Are you ready in, in Canada? Well, <clears throat> look, it's a, it's a process, and you are in the beginning stages of the process now. Well, you're actually in the middle stages, because there has been a cannabis industry that's been a gray market industry. As I was going through Vancouver, I saw lots of dispensaries. And and you'll be going through a transition now of, of bringing all that above ground. And I, my answer, are you ready? I think everybody is already over ready because we know that the alternatives to a legal and regulated cannabis market uh, are, are just no longer acceptable. Uh, we need to have the kinds of consumer protections uh, for people who are consuming this product that are only available in a regulated marketplace. We need to make sure that the people who are handling the product, that the sources of the product, uh, are all illegal and above board, and that we're not feeding uh, criminal cartels and, and cross-border uh, smuggling. Uh, so it's the, the alternative, is, uh, which has been going on, is, um, is no longer acceptable. That's a good point, and perhaps a distinction between, say, a market like Canada and California, where the two separate countries, Canada and the U.S., have had traditionally different attitudes toward marijuana. What do you think Canada can learn from, say, the state of California when it comes to this transition we're going through? Well, uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of things that California has, has gotten right with this transition, and there's some things that it hasn't uh, uh, gotten uh, so right. I think that um, that that you know very basic stuff like the um, like now all cannabis in California is laboratory tested. If you're buying from a licensed shop and you go into that shop, you have a high degree of confidence that it's, that the cannabis is tested. That will also be true in Canada, and 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 that is a major benefit. Um, when I look at at the approach that's being taken in Canada, I think that that one of the areas that that some work is going to be needed is the array of products that are going to be available. So in the initial phases, as I understand it in Canada, uh, only raw cannabis flowers are going to be legal to to sell. 
And uh, what we've found is that in the legal market here in California, only about 25 or 30 percent of consumers are actually interested in that product format. Most prefer uh, vape pens, uh, edibles, uh, sublinguals, capsules, and and the other range of product formats that we've been able to develop. Hmm. When you look at the demand there is, around the world. We've heard some from some companies here in Canada that there is a lot of growing global demand, at least on the medical side of things. Is there enough supply when you sort of look around the world? What's that going to mean for companies? I, I don't think that supply is, is going to be a long-term challenge for the cannabis industry. Uh, this is a plant that can be grown under a wide variety of different circumstances. You can grow high-quality cannabis almost anywhere in the world. Uh, any supply constraints that we'll be looking at will be solved in the course of a year or or two or three years at the most. It's just a question of getting the infrastructure up to speed. This is not, of course, a, a new phenomenon. People um, are consumers already. We have a, a very large number of them here in British Columbia, for instance. But what what uh, lessons do you think uh, Canada can take from jurisdictions like California and Colorado and Washington about public consumption uh, in the early stages of legalization, people who are trying the product anew and uh, and are either at work or driving or whatever, what, what are what are some of the pain points there? Yeah, so I, I think that your point about new adopters is is very well taken, and uh, and there needs to be a effort to educate people uh, about the things about cannabis that potentially could get them into trouble. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, there is a very big difference in the onset time and the effects and the duration period of inhaled or smoked cannabis and eaten cannabis. Mm -hmm. And many new cannabis consumers don't realize that while if you smoke a joint, you'll feel the effects immediately, and those effects will wear off in about 90 minutes. If you eat cannabis, it's going to take 60 to 90 minutes for you even to begin to feel it. And then it's going to last for six to eight hours. So this is the kind of information that it's going to be very important that uh, all new consumers of cannabis are made familiar with. Is there, um, when government tells you something like this, there is a hearty suspicion that I think a lot of people have about anything, <laughs> any information coming. So, so what role does the existing cannabis culture have to play in all of this in order to make the transition to a legalized market much more effective? Well, it is the established cannabis culture that really has the deepest understanding of of how and why uh, people use cannabis and what its effects are. And and I will say we, because I come out of that community, uh, we are the most uh, credible purveyors of that information. So at my dispensary, Harborside, uh, we put a huge amount of effort into doing exactly what we're talking about now, uh, educating new consumers. One example, uh, in our shop, we have a consultation counter at which every product that we have in the shop is displayed. Um, no sales are conducted at that, at that counter whatsoever, and anybody who wants to can walk into the shop and stand at the counter. Sometimes they stand there for an hour or two or three hours and be fully educated about cannabis before they make a purchase. Uh And I think that that kind of robust uh, customer uh, education is not only important from a social point of view, but I think it's a great business advantage. So uh, what I would urge is that cannabis retailers in in Canada 
uh, really make a major effort to to do this kind of education. I, I think that it, it helps build customer loyalty. It, it helps build basket size. It's a good business strategy, as well as being uh, the right thing to do. We're speaking to Steve D'Angelo. He joins us on the line from California. He's the founder of Harborside Health Center and the co-founder and president of ArcView Group, which connects entrepreneurs in the cannabis space with investors. You brought up retail, Steve, and province to province, different models for retail are emerging from a public model to a public-private model, regulations around being able to sell online. It's very different across the country. In the States, what do you think has proven to be a, a successful model when you're taking into account both providing access to products, but also trying to ensure quality and safety? Well, there's there are a lot of different models of retail fulfillment, and I think that they offer different advantages to different types of, of consumers. Uh, so, of course, we have the traditional retail uh, storefront uh, that works that works quite well in California. We have several thousand of them. They are uh, privately owned and operated, but uh, they are now uh, quite strictly regulated. And the advantage there is that there's just a lot of different kinds of shops. Uh, it's, it's, it, there are not as many as we need, so it's not as convenient as you would like. But there are many different types of shops with different approaches for different types of consumers. Uh, because they, the shops are sometimes uh, remote or sometimes there are lines at the shops, we've also seen a, a big uptick in, uh, in, in online-based orders and delivery. So one of the most um, successful companies in the States is in California is a company called Ease, which has been uh, doing deliveries. They call themselves the Uber of, of weed, and uh, they have a very um, friendly consumer interface, uh, an app, and people can order cannabis and it will be delivered to them um, uh, wherever they are. Um, uh, that's uh, another fulfillment model. Um, one of the things that we do at Harborside is we do a web order pickup. So about 25, 30% of the, of the sales that we do at Harborside are, are ordered online first. Consumers can go to our website, browse through our menu, learn about the products, select their products, order them, and then they can come into the shop and the package uh, will be ready for them uh, when they walk in. So uh, those are, are some uh, models of consumer fulfillment. And then we have a number of other ones I could tell you about. Yeah. Can you tell me, uh, in your visit to Vancouver, as you say, you, you saw a lot of these dispensaries. And I think we're in a bit of a quandary right now to figure out what we're going to do about the dispensaries when the legal market comes. These are, these are obviously uh, people that won't have licenses to operate. But how, how do we avert something that um, is not going to be terribly confrontational uh, in, in all of this? Do you have a view about how, how, we, how we morph into this other um, era here? Yeah, I mean, what I would advocate is that those dispensaries be licensed uh, unless they are not licensable, unless the management of those dispensaries uh, is not willing to be part of a regulated and licensed regime. Um, but uh, these are the folks who have been doing it for years. Uh, they know about the plant. Um, and I think that they should be given an opportunity to fully participate in the industry. From an investor perspective, Steve, being based in the U.S., are a lot of people looking north of the border to Canada, to Vancouver, maybe specifically for new opportunities? So there's this uh, what I call powerhouse combination happening between Canada and the United States, especially with California. And because uh, cannabis is federally legal in Canada, 
it's also being traded on the public exchanges. And that's made Canada the major source of cannabis capital, not just for the United States, but, but globally now. And, and so we see a lot of the Canadian publicly traded companies now making investments in California and other states into American cannabis companies. And many of these companies have much longer experience than any of the Canadian companies do with manufacturing cannabis products, with uh, distributing those products, with branding and marketing those products. And so there's a, a great combination here as the Canadian companies uh, provide capital to the American companies, the American companies uh, provide uh, expertise in return. And, and, and then, of course, because Canada has an export ability, um, the, the work that these Canadian-American uh, companies do together can then uh, take off around the world and, and be exported to any country around the world that uh, is willing to accept them. Last question before we let you go, uh, Steve. Uh, you've got California, Colorado, Washington, other states that now have a legalized environment for cannabis. You've got a country like Canada about to, uh, about to do this. What do you think it's going to take for the United States to legalize it? Oh, I think you're going to see de facto legalization in the United States quite soon. Uh, we have a bill pending in the United States Senate now that was sponsored by Senator Cory Gardner, who is the senior senator from the state of Colorado. He's the chairman of the Republican Finance Committee in the Senate, a very, very powerful person. He's paired up with Senator Chuck Schumer, uh, who is a liberal Democrat, uh, and, uh, and we have a, a strong bipartisan consensus. President Trump has, has spoken in favor of allowing uh, the states to pursue an independent course of action. I think that, that the way it's going to unfold is within the next year or so, you will see the passage of legislation at the federal level in the United States, giving the states uh, an ability to, uh, to run their own cannabis regulatory programs. And, and then very shortly after that, or perhaps contemporaneously with that, a, um, a legalization of medical cannabis at the federal level. So cannabis would probably be rescheduled from a Schedule One to a Schedule Two, and you would see the beginnings of the development of a more traditional um, uh, pharmaceutical approach towards cannabis. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. We'll wait and see for that. Steve, for now, thanks so much for joining us with your insight. Great pleasure. Thank you, Canada, for your great work. <laughs> That's Steve D'Angelo. He's the co-founder and president at ArcView Group, joining us on the line today from California. As we do get closer to legalization here in Canada, where will recreational cannabis producers be allowed to operate? Let's look at the Metro Vancouver real estate challenges facing producers in a moment. We're continuing our discussion on cannabis today by merging Two of the most talked about topics in Canada, really, the legalization of recreational marijuana and real estate. A new white paper from Colliers International expects legalization to have a profound impact on commercial real estate here in Metro Vancouver. Producers will also face some challenges in finding industrial land, which is already in short supply. So the paper argues that BC's agricultural land reserve may provide a viable alternative 
for recreational cannabis companies. Joining us now with more on this is Andrew Rojek, Market Intelligence Manager for Western Canada at Colliers International, one of the authors of the report, Cannabis and ALR, Keep the Land, Cultivate the Future. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I thought uh, I thought all this agricultural land was just to put monster homes on in Richmond. <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole thing, is it? Uh, it, is, it um, is it a wise idea? to allow a lot of the ALR into the cannabis sector? Well, I think um, I think it presents a pretty big opportunity. Uh, whether it's wise or not is probably for some people much smarter and they, they get paid more than me to decide, uh, being that the ALC. Um, but what it certainly does provide is a, an opportunity for what is really an agricultural product uh, and we sort of we do need to start thinking of it that way. Um, if it does go through with being legalised, as as the federal government has sort of indicated that it will this year, um, it is it is an agricultural product, and it comes with certain connotations and a, and a different history than some other ones. But um, it needs a place to be produced. Um, there's a huge economy built around it, uh, or there there will be certainly. Uh, and there's a, a really important question of, of where it goes. Um, and in Vancouver, especially with, you know, vacancy for industrial um, facilities by our numbers at about 1.5%, uh, it's certainly not a balanced market. And, and we have a huge problem at the moment of, of trying to find space already for traditional industrial occupiers. So, yeah. um, you know, entering into that market, a, a huge beast of a, a new industry, um, figures from, I think, Deloitte, said in the first year it might be as big as $5 billion, which for context is about the size of the Canadian spirit market. Um, so it's a really big industry and we need to find a home for it. Um, and we think that the ALR you know, presents some kind of an opportunity f- for that. And as I understand it, medical marijuana producers already have access to ALR land, right? That's correct. So um, the ALC has supported the medicinal cannabis or medical marijuana um, production on ALR land. Um, so, you know, an, an extension of that we think is, you know, potentially viable, but obviously that's up to the ALC and um, to, to dictate. Mm-hmm. I, I've heard uh, Delta Mayor Lois Jackson already on about uh, her own concerns involving this, that uh, that th- this is perhaps, well, it's a zero-sum game. If you're growing cannabis on the one hand, you can't be growing tomatoes or asparagus or whatever it is you're going to do on the other, and that you, the food supply yep. may somehow be threatened by this. Is that something that we have to now contend with in terms of a, a debate in society? Yeah, it, it's a pretty interesting question and a really good point. Um, I don't necessarily know if it's a zero-sum game. Um, one of the benefits of, of the production of cannabis is that it can be grown in um, in greenhouses. Greenhouses can be established on, um, you know, not, not all agricultural land is created equal uh, and there's ag- agricultural tracts of land that aren't particularly suited to producing crops on them. Uh, that greenhouses can go on to produce cannabis. So they sort of provide an alternative. Um, and, you know, the, the ALC, sorry, the ALR was established to uh, provide for agricultural production and protect agricultural production. Food is an essential part of that, um, but it's for all agricultural products. So um, barley for beer, grapes for wine, yeah, uh, and potentially yeah. cannabis if, if mm-hmm. the recreational. So we, th- we just have this early apprehension about what about what we're really dealing with here when in fact we are already ensconced 
in agriculture that is serving off, say, the you know the other self-soothing legal products. You know? <laughs> I think so. Um, and part of, I guess, the concern with the cannabis industry is the uncertainty around how big it will be uh, and what the future of it will hold. Because you know we have some indications of the potential size of it, uh, and those indications are that it will be really large. But we don't really know exactly how big it will be and how much of an impact it will have on. Uh, on the ALR if, if um, it does get support to be grown there or on the industrial markets and, and those sorts of things. But it's a really big opportunity for Vancouver, I think, and um, some of the really big cannabis companies have already indicated that you know, if the rest of the world goes the way of Canada and starts to look at legalising um, recreational cannabis, that um, you know, almost being the first ones there in a way gives us an opportunity to potentially be an export mark, you know, be an exporter of cannabis to the rest of the world. And so it is a really, really big um, opportunity for some of these companies. So we, we are working with owners of land and, and occupiers um, around what their strategy might be, regardless of what happens with the ALR and the ALC. We're speaking to Andrew Rojak. He's a market intelligence manager for Western Canada at Colliers International and the author of a new report, Cannabis and ALR. It suggests that maybe using ALR for recreational cannabis production could be a good solution. In working with producers in the medical space, what are their needs and how important is location for their production facilities? Could they go outside of Metro Vancouver? Would that work for the product? Yeah, well... uh you know, we have brokers that work with these guys really, really closely um, who would have a far better understanding of exactly what their requirements are than I would. But my understanding is that um, to a certain degree it's flexible, um, but like all industrial users, they have a requirement for access to transport. Um, they need to be able to move their, move their um, products around. Um, but there is the flexibility of, you know, it, it can be produced in an existing traditional uh, industrial warehouse type facility or on a on a greenhouse um, so there is a little bit of flexibility flexibility around how it's produced um, the greenhouse option does have I guess some of the benefits around it's a little bit better for the environment uh, cost savings uses like less electricity and, and things like that is there going to be a security issue involving farmland or a land at all that is going to be producing this yeah, it's that's another really interesting question, and um, I don't know if there's necessarily going to be a security issue, but um, the producers will certainly have to be careful of security. Uh, I was asked this question the other day, and and I gave a little bit of thought, and you know, there's existing industrial users that need excellent security. If you're producing uh, any high value good, TVs, uh, iPhones, whatever the case may be, you yeah. probably need pretty good security. Mm -hmm. So um, whether there is a part of the federal act that um, should it be passed that sort of dictates exactly how, you know, security is to be sort of enforced or how it occurs, uh, I'm not sure and I'm, I'm not totally across, you know, the exact wording of the But we're not necessarily going to see the farms surrounded by high fences by and barbed wires. And yeah, barbed wire. guards, yeah. I'm not sure. I couldn't tell you. So, <laughs> yeah. We can't talk about real estate in Metro Vancouver without talking about price and certainly industrial land prices and real estate have gone up significantly year over year. What sort of options does that leave cannabis producers with and how may ALR land fit into that equation? Yeah, so that's probably one of the biggest talking points in Vancouver across every single type of real estate, residential, commercial, um, retail, whatever the case may be. It uh, 
you know, if if the ALC chooses not to support um, recreational cannabis being grown on the ALR, um, that's that's totally up to them and that's fine. But what it does do is introduce another really large industry, like I said earlier, into the existing market. And, and pricing for industrial in Vancouver is extremely high, um, which is a, a product of, one, the sort of low supply that we have. Um, and the huge amount of demand that we have. And we'd we'd probably run the risk of uh, either potentially losing uh, existing industrial users or users that are looking to come to Vancouver and can't, or otherwise cannabis producers who look to come to Vancouver but can't. So, you know, we have a finite amount of space uh, and a growing demand base and potentially a significantly growing demand base if we have recreational cannabis legalized. So, Because it's not clear, uh, at least in the early going, on the basis of even the recent Supreme Court decision or uh, the Camo decision, um, about whether we're going to be able to get a supply of cannabis from, say, Alberta, where there are very clearly some big plants being created in places like Edmonton and now Medicine Hat. Um, what's your? Is this the kind of thing where... British Columbians are going to have to grow for themselves and therefore turning to the ALR has to make some sense because otherwise it's not going to fulfill the legitimate supply that needs to be here. Yeah, um, I, I don't know exactly how that's going to end up looking, but uh, you know, if it is something that needs to be a, a BC product for BC residents, then you know, I think that makes an even stronger case for the use of the ALR um, because, you know, there is a little bit more land availability for industrial facilities in the middle of the country or as you, as you move sort of further east, but um, it's extremely tight here. So if it is a if it does end up, like you said, being a BC product for, for BC residents only, then um, that becomes a really, really competitive market uh, and we would, we would see, you know, an extra level of competition in the industrial market that's already at or near record pricing. Um, so it would be really tough. As we await a decision for recreational marijuana, on the medical side, how much activity has there been with companies choosing to actually move production onto ALR land? Yeah, so in the report, uh, we do sort of outline a few instances of, of where that's happened. Um, and there have been pretty significant operations that have, that have been taken up. All of those um, occurred fairly recently. I'm not aware of any that are ongoing right now in terms of deals that are under underway, but um, there certainly could be. So there are groups that are, are looking at it um, or have made acquisitions for, for medicinal, medicinal cannabis purposes already. Great. Andrew, really appreciate you coming on the program to shed some light on a different angle to this emerging industry. Thanks no, for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That's Andrew Rojek. He's a market intelligence manager for Western Canada with Colliers International. Coming up in a moment, BIV reporter Patrick Blennerhassett joins the show to look at how much in taxes Canadian workers pay compared to those in other countries. In 2017, workers in OECD countries paid on average just over a quarter of their gross wages in tax. How does Canada compare? Via View reporter Patrick Blennerhassett joins us with more on that. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, guys. 
So I think this report, Taxing Wages 2018, it looks at personal taxation on wages. And tell us, how does Canada compare? Are we at the top of the pack or the bottom of the pack? We're going to jump into Canada right away. Okay, so we have the 27th lowest tax wedge among the 35 OECD member countries in 2017. So I guess I should explain what uh, the OECD means by tax wedge. So it's total taxes on labor costs paid by employees and employers minus family benefits as a percentage of the labor costs to the employer. So, And this doesn't include any sort of VAT or here, like we have in BC, a PST, GST sort of system or anything like that? No, okay. it's sort of basically, yeah, just total taxes on sort of labor costs. So we're gotcha. looking, thinking about income and your employer and that sort of side of it. The sales tax side is sort of different, but it's still sort of integrated still, into it. It's still a burden for all of us. It's uh, still, yeah, here. it's yeah. a general burden. So we came 27th, we have the 27th lowest tax mm. wedge out of 35. So the average single worker in Canada faced a tax wedge of 30.9% in 2017 compared with the OECD average of 35.9. So if you want to complain about paying higher taxes, you're probably out of line in Canada. <laughs> Just going to say it. So <laughs> so we're doing okay. Who are maybe some of the, what are some of the countries that collect the most tax? Yeah. Sh- where should we not move, Patrick? <laughs> Okay, well, I, I, unless I you say, want really good funded services. Well, and I think that's a very good point, actually. You know, that like <laughs> if you want to maybe have your children go to post-secondary for free, if you want a lot of, uh, you know, pretty much any medical expense covered that you could desire, you know, I, I think a lot of those countries are collecting pretty big taxes and, and it is some people are getting something out of it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you guys obviously bring up the dichotomy that we face here. So I think we've talked about Belgium before on the show and its high tax rate. It has this absorbently high tax rate at 35%. And that's simply for income. And you're going to basically, if you're going to live in Belgium, half the money you make is going to go to the government. And that doesn't even factor in things like sales tax, GST, PSD, all that other type of stuff. But the flip side of that is that every year, Belgium usually ranks pretty high on standard of living, uh, income inequality or income equality, uh, also basically happiness. Um, A lot of the migrants that were sort of coming from Africa and the Middle East in sort of that wave that kind of has crested over a little bit, they all were trying to get to, say, Germany and Belgium because that's where if you can get in there. So it's like it's it's funny that the the people know about Belgium's high tax rate in the Middle East and down in Africa. So. With Belgium, you get pretty much everything for free. Everything's paid for. You get social security, you got daycare, you get post-secondary education, you mentioned, Tyler. Um, And it's basically Canada's model on steroids. It's kind of the same sort of type thing, but they just pay a lot more and they get a lot more. So if we were ever thinking of doing this, it would actually be quite easy because we're kind of set up the same in terms of parliamentary the parliamentary system, the government system, all that type of stuff. So I don't know. So just uh, crank up our taxes. and I'm sure nobody will have a problem with that, right? Uh, you guys are segueing me in all my stuff today. Oh, okay, I love it. Okay. okay. So here's the other thing. They always pull taxes and it never pulls high. Uh, conservatives and liberals don't like paying taxes. This is this weird thing where across all boards, people say, 
We need higher taxes to pay for more social services. However, I don't want to pay more tax. Of course. And this is a liberal person who is saying it because they worry about having Big Brother looking over them. And it's also a conservative saying that they're having Big Brother look over them too much. However, when you ask people how to raise their standard of living, what would be the best way to do it? They say you would probably have to raise taxes. Mm. So I don't know if we're just not getting it here, but it seems like we don't want to put two and two together or like a little one bit and one together. Cognitive dissonance on our yeah. part thinking we want a better life, but we don't want to pay for it. Is that the deal? Yes. I, I, I do wonder though, you know, and maybe I'm getting into the collective psychology of a society like Canada or the United States, but how much trust people have in the government to raise taxes and then get something out of it that would actually be worth it, though. I just mm-hmm. wonder if people would be concerned over misspending or stuff like that. Well, the, here's the thing. If you're living in a second or third world country, higher taxes is horrible because there's so much corruption and so much graft. But you're living in any one of these 35 countries, higher taxes is probably going to benefit you in the long run. And it's probably going to benefit you if you're doing, I want to say, the white picket fence model. If you're going to get married, uh, you can income split. If you're going to have kids, you get universal daycare. If you're going to buy a mortgage, you get help. Uh, Tax rates in that regard. If you're going to hold down a regular job, your pension's going to do a lot better. So if you're going to basically live, uh, I don't know, you know, Pleasantville style, (laughs) higher taxes is pretty good. So it it just kind of boggles my mind that people are sort of distrusting of the government when you look at the perspective of, we have basically entire continents where corruption basically runs the government. So I don't know, by a little bit of a, you know, complaining from the top of the mountain a little mm-hmm. bit, I think. So we're speaking to BIV reporter Patrick Blennerhassett. We're looking at a new report called Taxing Wages 2018, which looks at the level of taxation in OECD countries. It's almost 600 pages. So there's a lot of material in this yeah. report. Of course, you read every single one in detail. I did, yeah. And I, I could I name didn't. any page and you could tell me what's on it. <laughs> I'm curious if there's any commentary on tying economic performance to the taxation of wages. So you have Belgium, which has a lot of great services. Okay, fine. But what about general economic health? Higher taxes basically is not directly related to better economic health, but it definitely plays a part in it. Um, You look at the United States is probably the best example because they have fairly low taxes and they have fairly low social services. As everybody knows, they have to pay for their own medical treatment, which is a huge part of it. But economically speaking, and the capitalist model, um, they're doing really well, and they do quite well. And countries like, you know, Haley, you just go back from Singapore, where they have these Mm -hmm. economic zones, where you can basically, it's just a free for all of capitalism. However, the problem is, and the United States is also a great example of this, is that uneducated, sick, uh, overweight, unhealthy workers are also a really big burden on the economic system. And so are older people that don't have financial stability. And the United States is a good example of that as well, where you basically have to just work a whole lot unless you're well-to-do or you know come from money. And you end up having things like work stress, you get overweight, you get sick, and then you burden the medical system. And it's this loop that sort of plays around. So 
I don't know. I, I don't want to say that one way is better than the other, but it definitely, it's a double-edged sword, I'd say, on both sides. So mm-hmm. A lot to consider. On the other side, too, if you think if workers are getting taxed less, more money in their pocket, potentially more consumer spending, and we've certainly seen a fairly high level of that in yeah. Canada. I think one, it would be interesting to mention here with Canada, our income tax and our employer social security contributions combine to account for 79% of our total tax wedge. And that's above the 77% OECD average. So what this means is that we have a lot of high income earners at the end of their careers. So this would be the baby boomers. And in Canada, they did really, really well. So all of our bosses, all of our parents are aging out into retirement and they are making bank right now in their last sort of earning years. I know my dad did this with the government in his last five years of his earning power were incredibly high and he got to transition that into his pension. So it's basically something that we need to worry about because once those guys, baby boomers all go over that crest and they're no no longer sort of drawing that income, they are going to lose some income. But I don't know. It's something that is very unique to Canada. Um, Not a lot of other countries have it. Japan is probably somewhat similar to us but well i would say that one of the other big differences between canada and other say developed economies though is just our openness to immigration and i think we are making up a lot of ground with regards to population growth yeah. birth rates falling like substantially here as we see in japan but one mm-hmm. of the big differences between japan and canada is just how we are opening our doors to immigrants uh, trying to boost the or successfully boosting the economy through doing that. Yeah. And I know Japan has kind of been starting to do a bit of a 180 because they're seeing the writing on the wall and their population is a little bit farther ahead of us because of sort of the second, the way the second world war kind of played out. So they're already sort of seeing the bellwether signs of that coming through and they're starting to open up the doors a bit more to immigration. I would say like if we were looking at pinpointing immigration the problem is, is that our system is still based on the fact that you have to have a little bit of money to immigrate here. If we were really wanting to fill a gap, um, we would sort of move away from the fact that you probably need, you know, certain X amount of dollars to get an immigration lawyer. Therefore, you're probably already a CEO or a president or a software developer. We should be trying to attract, wait, we should wait, be wait. trying to steal I- some younger kids. I would say that the vast majority of immigrants to Canada are not CEOs or presidents or anything. Like no, that. no, I, I hear you. But I think what I'm trying to say is that if we want to fill, if we want to think bigger macroeconomic, we need to fill that gap of younger people and sort of mid-range people that don't necessarily have the money, but they have the skill set to contribute to the economy. Sure. Um, what we're doing right now is we're immigrating a lot of baby what you would call baby boomers from other countries and their children there's we're not filling that gap between those children so you know i want to say like 20 to 30 like millennials we need more millennials in canada as much as that sounds weird but demographically the oecd has sort of seen that as that being a gap there right but i mean uh we are seen uh say the global skills strategy rolled out in canada last june we yeah. have a two-week turnaround now to get skilled workers into the country uh but the fact of the matter is yeah we are bringing in um a lot of immigrants with you know relatively young immigrants who also have children 
those children will be, you know, of working age in a few years as mm-hmm. well. And I, I, I anticipate, anticipate a lot of them filling in that labor gap as well. Yeah, you would hope because when a, chi- a child has a lot easier time immigrating to a new country than somebody who's older. I mean, the, obviously, the big thing is your language skills. I think it's like, Haley, I don't know how many languages do you speak, but I, I'm two. guessing two. Okay. Yeah. But you learned, was it French? You learned French growing up, I did right? French immersion, yeah. Exactly. So it's learning a language before a certain age you can, is a lot easier if mm-hmm. you're my age or any time, any, I think it's like something like 25 when your cerebral cortex develops, that one language is pretty much imprinted. So yes, Tyler, you do make a good point. Those younger kids will probably get Canadianized pretty quickly. Um, I think the issue is, is that their parents aren't necessarily going to be able to make that jump and with a lot of the immigrants. So I don't know. It's always a generational thing with any immigration, though. Uh, generally, immigrants are lower income than the average Canadian citizen. That That's just a yeah. fact. And it is kind of a generational sacrifice in that I think a lot of parents see that they are, you know, putting the future into their children who mm. will, you know, be able to earn the same as the average Canadian. Well, and I guess this might be a good way to sort of sum it up and sort of encapsulate everything. If you look at the three benefits that the OECD pointed out for higher taxes, the first is obviously uh, Medicare and socialized medicine. I mean, that's a no brainer. Um, The second is social security. So when people age out into retirement, once again, they burn the medical system, they burn the government, but the third is education. So, there's a direct correlation with higher taxes, better education, and better all overall standard of living. So if you're thinking about what your taxes are going to, like roads and bridges and infrastructure, um, they should be going towards education, um, mm-hmm. primary, secondary, and post-secondary education being free. Um, the studies on that are basically saying that if you give college for free, everybody wins in the end. <laughs> So it's it's funny how we want to have our cake and eat it too. Is that a good analogy? I think we so. Want... Yeah. Things come with a price tag. Of course. <laughs> no matter uh, how much we may want to deny that. Yeah. As always, Patrick, thanks for joining us to walk us through. Thanks for having me, guys. That's BIV reporter Patrick Blenner-Hassett. So you've been listening to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper. Subscribe and find past episodes on iTunes and over at BIV.com. Thanks for joining us. 